Hello, and welcome to season five of the LuxCast, where we explore the intersections of Christian faith, culture, and our lives. My name is Megan Rice, Communications Coordinator at Western Theological Seminary. The theme of this season is public theology, as we engage in dialogue about topics that affect both the church and society. Today's guest is Dr. Amanda Drury, Director of Vision and Innovation at the Brain Kitchen in Marion, Indiana. Dr. Drury is also Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Indiana Wesleyan University, where she writes and teaches about testimony, innovation, and youth ministry. Sherry Osting sat down with Amanda to find out how practice and theology meet through cooking, doing homework, and hanging out with kids at the Brain Kitchen. Mandy, thank you for being with us today. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. We're delighted to have you on the LuxCast. So I'd love to hear you tell us about the Brain Kitchen and if there's a story of how the Brain Kitchen started. (laughs) And I'd love to frame our conversation around theology and innovation by starting with that that story. Great, okay. So it had a very strange beginning. Uh, We had gotten a Lilly grant at Indiana Wesleyan to uh, bring in ministry incubators to do some innovation stuff. And uh, ministry incubators, they come in, they do like Shark Tank type stuff. And I realized, boy, if we're going to bring them to campus, I actually need to go and visit them and see what it is they're doing so I know what, what it is we, we're getting ourselves into. And so my plan was I was going to travel to Princeton Seminary and observe a ministry incubators session and then come back and, and prepare for them. I remember you coming to the hatchathon. Yes, yes. <laughs> but about two days before, before that happened, I, I heard from Kenda Dean. She said, oh, no, you can't just observe. You have to participate. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, boy, I've got to come up with an idea for some kind of social innovation to go through the motions of this. And the Sunday before, I had heard our pastor talking about Grant County, which is uh, where we were living, having the highest child poverty rate in, in the state of Indiana. And that stuck with me. And so when I heard I've got to come with some kind of project, I said, okay, well, how about if we create a trauma-informed space an after-school program, we'll do mentoring, we'll do the midline crossing type stuff, and we'll teach the kids how to cook. And my husband was there. Put all these things together. Uh, Let's just take all the things that I love and put them together. And uh, my husband, John, was listening. He goes, yeah, you can call it the Brain Kitchen. Great, we'll call it the Brain Kitchen. So I hop on a plane, get to Princeton, and just start playing around with this idea. Uh, I got paired up with a woman, Victoria White from, from Duke, who was helping me think through this. And so we're, we spend the whole weekend dreaming this up. And we get to the end of the weekend, and it occurred to me, I, I think we can actually do this. And it was kind of funny because Victoria had thought it was already in existence. She didn't realize we were just talking hypothetically. But uh, we almost talked ourselves into this whole project. So I went back to Indiana. Around that time, uh, there was a Ball Venture grant that, that came up, and we got $17,000 to, to kickstart this, to get this going. And the rest was like history, if you want to use that cliche. But, but it happened almost accidentally, and um, it just seemed, a lot of it just seemed to be ordained from the Lord that, that this could happen in this particular way in this time. It was, it was just crazy. So tell us a bit more about what the Brain Kitchen is now. Yes. It started out as this hodgepodge of things that you love <laughs> right, in its right. idea form, but what does it actually look like now? Right. So Marion Public Library had this gorgeous house uh, from the 1880s, I think it was. It had been completely renovated and it was empty. And the director of the library actually said, we've been praying for something to do with this space. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> we have an idea. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the house is broken up into three parts. And in the first part, uh, that's where we have the kids come in and we do some type of movement. So we've got occupational therapy doctoral students that come in and lead the kids in, in brain building exercises, midline crossing exercises, uh, with the hope that we're getting out energy, but also, also strengthening connections there. The middle part of the house then they go into, and that's where we're helping them with homework. We might bring in someone with therapy dogs, or a doctor is coming in with her stethoscope and letting the kids play around with it. Maybe a more traditional after-school program. Exactly. That think about. Yes, yes. And then the, the kitchen is in the last half. And in addition to making their own snacks, the kids work on meals, pieces of meals throughout the week. So that by the time we get to Friday afternoon, we're sending them home with a giant thing of soup and two loaves of bread that they've made themselves, one that they keep and one that they give away. So it's those three things and one that we squeeze in for about 15 kids at a time, and that's, that's the Brain Kitchen. And which kids get to participate? So we partnered with Allen Elementary School, and uh, it's kind of interesting. Originally, I had a different elementary school in mind, and I spent about six months trying to, trying to connect with them, and it just wasn't working out. And it took six months of this, these doors being closed for me to realize, oh, maybe I should look somewhere else, and had heard about Allen's school. I had heard that they had first of all, low test scores in a high poverty area. The entire district was about in, a, in a, a food desert there. But I also heard that they had fantastic teachers and administrations and a, and a new principal that was just doing amazing things. So I sent them an email and within 30 minutes of sending that email, I got back this enthusiastic yes. Uh, so that was a, that door opened up, so that's the one we took. So they were in the right place, and you were in the right place at the right time. Yes, yes. To work together. Yes, and, and ironically enough, the social worker there is named Lori Brain, which said it should have been my first sign that we have Mrs. Brain helping <laughs> us with the Brain Kitchen. So. <laughs> a very clear sign. A very clear God. sign. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So you teach practical theology. Yes. And you're a theologian. So what makes this work theological? Mm. How is this tethered to the work that God is calling you to do and the church to do? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I should, I should mention, so there are curriculum aspects to what it is we're doing. And uh, we've been drawing on Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, taking that and uh, traditional Bible study and seeing, okay, what happens when we bring these together? And so uh, I'm thinking of an Advent devotional that one of our students did, led the students through. And she brings up Mary and Joseph, and we realize, boy, a lot of the story is about housing insecurity. They're not sure where, where they're going, hmm. but rather than asking a, a fourth grader, do you feel nervous about not knowing? You know, you don't want to yeah. just go at it that way. And so she tells the story in such a way and invites them to imagine, boy, what do you think, what do you think Mary was feeling? What do you think Mary was needing? And to hear the things they came up with, uh, you know, I, boy, I think Mary needed new shoes. Or the kids were very concerned that baby Jesus would have a blanket. And so allowing them to come in from their own context and read the scripture that way, rather than coming in with our curriculum and saying, you know, here's what it looks like to follow God, mm -hmm. uh, allowing for their own experiences to speak into that. So, so there is a very intentional element there, but... Uh, in terms of the faith, de faith, faith formation development, of the yes. children. Yeah. Yes, but then in terms of... Um, boy, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a professor, I'm a pastor in the area... And to hear that there is that much of a need, uh, because not only do we have the highest child poverty rate, we also have the highest giving rate per capita. And something that there was just not computing. It, it didn't seem like a church could really be living out its mission without engaging in some kind of, in some kind of uh, public theology, some kind of community 
a response like that. So we've got all of this giving and all of these churches with great intentions. Right. And all, all these people living in poverty and right. food insecurity. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean to say that there weren't churches already doing stuff. Yeah. There were some great programs going on that have been fed into the brain kitchen. But just realizing, no, we, we definitely need a stronger presence here. Yeah. And the church needs to be there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So you've also written on testimony, and more recently you've been researching and writing on testimony and trauma. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear how the Brain Kitchen has either informed your research or how your research has informed the work that you're doing on the ground. Sure, sure. My um, guess is that's a two-way street. <laughs> yeah. Well, anytime you're bringing any child in after school, they're going to have a lot of energy they, they get out. I don't care what the socio, uh, how much money they're coming from or, or this or that. You bring kids together and they've got energy. And I know my tendency is to uh, look at problem kids or, um, you know, I get so tired or annoyed or, okay, what, what consequences do we need? What boundaries do we need to keep this going the way we need to? But to realize that um, so oftentimes what we see kids acting out of they're not, they're not being drama queens or, or kings or whatever, that, that it's, it's the trauma. So uh, to, to assume trauma before drama has been one of the mm -hmm. mant mantras that, that we're doing, to assume that if a kid is acting out, there's probably a reason for it. Uh, so I, I heard a story about, about one of the boys at school, um, this was a first grader, so not a part of, a, a part of the brain kitchen, but um, was just acting out in the classroom, just over and over again, kept getting, kept getting moved out of the classroom, this and that, and the teacher was just, you know, at her wit's end, yeah. and a social worker who was aware of this boy's situation said, oh, well, there was a shooting at the boy's house the night before. Well, of, of course, the kid yeah. is going to be um, having a hard time sitting and, and, and doing math problems. So just that awareness, there's, I, th I think, a lot of grace-giving that's embedded in that kind of um, trauma response to assume, you know, people, people don't just act out. There, there's reasons behind, behind everything here. And to try to create the space where people feel uh, safe and they're able to unpack some of that, even, even if they can't quite articulate it themselves. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that in relationship to testimony, mm -hmm. is, um, is there a therapeutic angle on that or? Sure. So, Oftentimes when someone has experienced some kind of trauma, they have a difficult time talking about it in a narrative linear way. Um, oftentimes it'll be sporadic or... Uh, they're not like sticky notes that you're... Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Sticky notes or, or they're getting stuck and they almost, almost can't talk. And yet um, we also know that there's something very healing about being able to talk through uh, pain in, in, at the right time and the right way with the right people. You don't just want to you know, open up wounds that you can't, um, can't help bind back together. Uh, so trying to create spaces where there are small moments for people to, be, to begin to process, to begin to talk about their own experiences. Um, we don't do this at the Brain Kitchen, but one thing I've been really interested in is a lot of uh, EMDR therapy. And oh boy, am I going to get that EMDR? So it's eye rapid movement desensitization, I think it is. Okay. And, uh, Oftentimes, what, what especially trauma therapists will do is they will work to signal both the right and left sides of the brain at the same time, either through lights or, or tapping your knees. And while that's going on, you, you retell some of the story that, that has been plaguing you. And there's something about stimulating both sides of the, the brain while you are uh, 
speaking that, that allows for things to um, just come back together in, in different ways. So, so if you think about the movie Inside Out, and there's all those marbles, and then there's the marbles that then get lost, and they're just kind of rolling around, and just how disorienting that is. So this kind of, of trauma therapy is, is about helping you gather those marbles, essentially, and getting them in place so that you're not just uh, tripping over these random trauma file folders in your brain and getting surprised by them, but, but they're creating some kind of order, some kind of place and category for them. Helps you not lose your marbles, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to stick with that. If we're going to stick with that. Yeah. So what advice would you give to Christian leaders who, like you, sit in a pew and hear the story of their community told and are motivated to action? Is there advice that you would give them based on your experience? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because there's something I, I haven't brought up yet that, that's been a, a key part of what we're doing. And that's been... Um, don't come in as the savior. I remember early on in our days talking about the brain kitchen and I made the comment of wanting to empower kids and someone jumped right in and said, no, you're not giving them power. They already have power. They have their own agency. They, they have something that they need to share that they need to say here. Uh, and so, so there's a, a, real, a real call to, to listen. Who are the people in front of me and I'm not just going to look at them and see what they're missing, but to assume that there is some kind of abundance already here. So asset-based community development, uh, I think, has been helpful for us. Um, Broadway United Methodist Church does this really well, too, in Indianapolis with Mike Mather, where uh, someone will come in and, you know, maybe they're needing money from the church, and Mike will ask them, well, tell me, tell me three things that you're really good at that you could teach other people. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, this person who doesn't have anything, um, is sharing about, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good cook, or this and that. And it's been amazing to see what social enterprises have popped up just through asking some of those simple questions. You know, what do you know? What do you want to learn? Catering businesses and tutoring businesses. And so to, to really approach this kind of social innovation, community development from this sense of abundance, that, that the Holy Spirit is already at work. I'm not triggering anything. My job is to keep my eyes and ears open and see where the Holy Spirit might be moving that I might have the blessing of partnering to being a part of it. And so you become a catalyst for the work that God is already doing. Uh, yeah, in or in, in a lot of cases, I feel like it's being a witness too. I mean, yeah. you're, you're watching things happen and naming things. You know, did you see that? I think that was, that might have been the Lord there making that happen. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Jerry.